Welcome to the Drawdown Agenda podcast, a collaboration between the Sustainability Agenda and Drawdown, a truly inspiring project that ranks and evaluates the 100 most powerful carbon reduction solutions that can help us achieve drawdown when greenhouse gas concentrations peak and begin to fall. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every fortnight, I speak to leading drawdown researchers who have worked to identify and measure different drawdown solutions. We explore the research, discuss how these solutions work in practice, and learn how we can take collective action to achieve drawdown and help reverse global warming. Girls' education and family planning are two fundamental human rights, and they've been too often neglected, but they can transform women's lives. And we've now discovered through Project Drawdown, they are enormously important to helping us adapt to and mitigate global warming. And actually, when you take them together by contributing to slowing population growth, which is a key driver of emissions, our research suggests that girls' education and family planning may have the single largest impact to help reverse global warming. But of course, linking population and the environment can be a sensitive topic because there have been some ugly and coercive family planning programs in the past. But there are actually more examples of rights-based voluntary family planning initiatives that have radically transformed the lives of women around the world. I'm very pleased today to welcome Drawdown Fellow Alicia Graves to the podcast to discuss the impact of family planning and girls' education on global warming and drawdown. Alicia is president of Venture Strategies for Health and Development, a California-based non-profit organization that aims to help stabilize global population by securing women's freedom to choose their family size. She's also co-founder of Oasis, a project of the University of California, Berkeley, focusing on developing research and local leadership to overcome the most serious developmental challenges in the Sahel region of Africa. Alicia is passionate about population stabilisation being achievable within a human rights framework and sees it as an imperative for global sustainability. So thank you very much, Alicia, for taking the time today to speak to the Drawdown podcast. Thank you for having me, Fergal. It's a pleasure. Great. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to talking to you about the work that you've been doing in Drawdown. Uh, maybe a good place also to start would be to talk a little bit about your background, how you became involved in Project Drawdown. And uh, I know you, you wear various hats. Tell me a little bit about the Oasis Initiative and indeed Venture Strategies for Health and Development. Oh, great. Um, so yeah, my background is in family planning, as you might have guessed. And a couple of years back, I got a phone call from Amanda Ravenhill and Chad Frischman, who were just getting Project Drawdown started at the time. Um, they were looking for the 100 um, uh, best solutions that we have readily available to, to draw down uh, carbon in the atmosphere. And uh, Amanda's mother used to work for a great organization called Population Services International. Um, she recommended that they think about family planning as it relates to, to population. And so um, that's how they came to contact me. Uh, I, uh, I was thrilled because a lot of people who are working on issues related to the environment, climate, uh, sustainable development, overlook what I call the population factor. And uh, as we'll get to talk about today, it's a really important piece of the of the equation. So that's how I came into Project Drawdown. I, I had been at the time and still am um, really um, 
very focused on um, trying to to help change demographic trends in one part of Sub-Saharan Africa called the Sahel. So that's the OASIS initiative that you mentioned. It stands for Organizing to Advance Solutions in the Sahel. And uh, the Sahel uh, is a, it's an ecological zone just south of the Sahara Desert that um, stretches across the widest part of the continent um, from Senegal, Mauritania in the west to Eritrea and Ethiopia in the east. It has some of uh, the world's poorest countries, some of the countries most affected by climate change, um, where w- women tend to have very low status and decision-making power very high family size and to the point where Niger has the world's fastest growing natural, uh, fastest natural population growth in all of human history. So um, we know that uh, upholding women's and girls' rights can help change things very dramatically. And that's what uh, my colleagues at the Oasis Initiative and I are, are focused on. Great, great. Now, you, you mentioned right from the beginning there this question of population and um, the connection with climate change, uh, not something that's obvious to everyone, I don't think, and has, uh, I guess, different layers as well. I know you've been focusing on the education part of the, the, the research as well as the family planning. Can you talk a little bit about um, the question of population growth? Because I know that the carbon footprint of you know people living in, in, in Africa and uh, I guess the Sahel as well are, is very, very small as a proportion of you know uh, America, for example, or, or, or other developed countries. Countries, and yet it's a key uh, key issue. Absolutely. Um, I think it's good to take like a really long view of human population on, on Earth. Um, so it took all through all of human history up until sometime in the 1800s to add, to grow to the first one billion people. So it took about two and a half million years to get the first one billion people on earth. And then the second billion took about 120 years. And the most recent billion, the jump from six to seven billion people took only 13 years. So today we're at about seven and a half billion. Um, and most people are using figures from just even a few years ago um, and, and don't realize just how fast um, we continue to grow. Um, and by the middle of this century, it's expected uh, to be um, at nearly 10 billion um, and over 11 billion by, by 2100. So uh, there's, there's a long history of, of sort of uh, interest in population and um, a lot of people dismissed um, sort of the, the threat or concerns about population growth because some of the predictions in the 60s and 70s about this mass uh, famine and starvation due to rapid population growth didn't come true. And that's thanks to um, the Green Revolution. Um, but the truth is that the, the population explosion, as some say, is still going on. So every year we're adding, I think it's about 85 million additional people, which is like adding another Germany to, uh, to our planet in terms of the number of people. Uh, and that is a lot, um, you know, it has a lot of implications in terms of, of resource use, um, you know, ensuring that those people have their basic human needs met. Um, and also, of course, um, uh, impact on, on climate. I'll just add that um, in this century, 99% of the population growth is happening in poor countries. 
And like you acknowledged, the footprint, the carbon footprint of, of the average person in a poor country is just uh, so much less than it is in more developed countries that, um, you know, some people might feel like it's too sensitive to talk about population as it relates to climate. But even if you take the case of the U.S., nearly uh, one in two pregnancies are unintended. And so there are certainly high emitting countries that still have a great need for improved family planning services. Um, and in, in countries where the emissions are much lower per person, there still is a need and, and, uh, and a demand for family planning. So I like to say, like, it's not it's not telling we're not trying to tell women or couples what to do. It's really about giving women what they want. Right. And education is important here as well, Alicia. Absolutely. So um, there's been some research by uh, John Bongartz and Judith Bruce at the Population Council. They looked at for high fertility settings. Um, what does uh, by delaying by de- by delaying marriage by five years? What impact does that have on the population growth rate in a in a given country? And they estimate it's about 15 to 20 percent reduction in population growth rate. So why is that? Um, you know, the, the very first thing people would think of, well, if they're getting married later, they're more likely to have children later. That's true. Um, and if they are, uh, the best way to delay marriage is by giving, giving families other options for their, for, especially for their, for their girls, for their adolescent girls. So the most effective way to delay marriage is by keeping girls in secondary school, which has a ton of other benefits that I don't even need to go into. Um, but uh, so if those girls are delaying their marriage or, you know, marrying later because they are in secondary school, then that not only means they're likely to have children later, but they're more likely to be able to negotiate with their partner using family planning. They're more likely to be able to access health ser- services to get family planning methods and their aspirations change. So they might want to have a smaller family so that they can work outside of the house and, and earn an income. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, in terms of the actual ranking, uh, the Drawdown 100 ranking, um, it's Education Girls is number six and Family Planning number seven. So I guess added together, they are, well, the first or the second, I guess, after food um, in terms of impact. Yeah, so... Um... I don't. I won't go into the methodology too much, but um, one thing that was done was really looking at um, what's happening. What are the different um, United Nations projections for population between here and 2050? And we know that getting to the medium projection, the UN acknowledges this, and a lot of other people who are pay attention do to get to the even to the medium um, uh, variance, so the middle projection, there needs to be greater investment in family planning. Um, what we did was compare the high population projection with the medium projection and put that into the model uh, in a way that would allow us to see solution by solution. Um, what would it mean to achieve that medium variant? How much more emissions reductions would there be? Um, and then when you add all of that up, um, we estimated 120 gigatons of um, carbon equivalent uh, emissions could be uh, could be averted, and so uh, this was at this point the the analysis was really out of my hands. But um, 
I think that uh, a really crude first analysis was to just divide up the 120 gigatons between these two solutions, which we know contributes to this uh, lower population scenario. Uh, I think in the next round of data analysis, we can be more refined. And I think that family planning would take a larger, um, you know, family planning should get more credit because it has a more direct impact on uh, on the population dynamics than education. But education is a, is a, is a, an important one too. And um, as I said earlier, I mean, both of these solutions have so many other benefits. Even the ICPP recognizes family planning as having co-benefits for health and for climate. And it really has a, a, a virtuous circle or virtuous cycle of, uh, of changes at the household level when a woman uses it. Yes, yes. It seems to me um, something of a surprise that they feature so highly. I don't know, is that generally a response to the research? Uh, and to what extent did the analysis, um, when you put it all together, to what extent did this reveal something that, that wasn't already known? I guess, what was the sense of the importance of these factors before this research? Um, there have, has been other research suggesting that that population is a really uh, important factor um, for for contributing to, to climate change one, one way or the other. There's a researcher named Brian O'Neill who I think has done the most widely regarded uh, work on it. And he, um, his work, he estimated that 16 to 29 percent of the reductions that in, in emissions that are needed by 2050 could be achieved by slowing population growth. And the 120 gigaton um, emissions averted um, estimate that we came up with is in line with with O'Neill's work. So I don't think there were huge surprises um, for me. And and I was working on it with my mentor and very close colleague, um, Professor Malcolm Potts at UC Berkeley, uh, the man with whom I started this OASIS initiative. Um, I think for us, it wasn't um, such a great surprise, but it is... uh, I mean, it's really powerful to see it to see it on paper and to see how it fits into the to the model and how it um, sort of stacks up against the other solutions that Drawdown has been looking at. What was most surprising? What did you discover in the journey? Um, something that I learned more about was the the cost effectiveness of family planning uh, towards combating climate change or towards bringing the solution to, to draw down carbon in the atmosphere. Um, and when we did, you know, I um, actually haven't looked at um, all of the, the costs per um, unit of adoption that, that drawdown has analyzed, but, you know, family planning is, I know that it's the, the most cost effective way to reduce maternal mortality because you can't die from a pregnancy that you don't have. Um, but I didn't realize just how how cost effective it would be and how you know how affordable it is for the for the global community um, to really do this at scale and that that's a big surprise. Right. Well, let's talk a little bit about family planning then, maybe first. And um, why is this so challenging? Um, for most of the world, family planning is not so challenging. It's pretty straightforward. There have been some beautiful success stories of, um, you know, when countries prioritize good access, good information, um, they reach out to people in, you know, kind of more rural communities, 
um, with services and, and counseling on family planning. When countries prioritize it, fertility can fall really quickly. Um, Thailand and Iran are some good examples of that. Um, the fertility transition, some people say, is coming from a demographic transition, but I'll talk about fertility in particular, is coming from high fertility to low fertility. And some countries have done that and, you know, going, um, you know, from, from six or seven children down to three children in a matter of, uh, you know, I think Iran did it in about seven years. So whereas in the United States and in parts of Western Europe, it took over 100 years. Um, so... It can be done. Uh, it can be done in a way that respects women's and couples' rights. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess the success and the challenges of dealing with family planning vary across the world. And some countries have had some tremendous success stories, and in other countries, it's still a very uh, politically charged and a challenging situation. Can you talk a little bit about some of the examples? Yeah. So. Um, most of the world is approaching replacement level fertility, which is about two children per couple. Um, I'd like to point out something that a lot of people take for granted, the access to family planning in their, in their own lives. But if you take the case of, uh, in, in, let's say, North America and the U.S., um, a woman uh, will, will intend to have about two children on average. And so a woman in the U.S. will spend about, five years of her of her life of her adult life trying to get pregnant um i'm pregnant uh lactating and so not uh, you know we say uh, not 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 fertile while she's while she's breastfeeding exclusively so she'll spend five years of her life in those stages but she'll spend 30 years trying to avoid a pregnancy and so something it's important to remember is to when you want to have a smaller family um, then you really have to have correct and consistent use over decades of your life. And uh, I, I think that's important to remember. I, uh, you asked sort of about the sensitivities around it and why some countries are so, um, well, tend to have much smaller families on average. I think uh, this, this kind of transition towards a small family has seen, uh, been seen all, all around the world. With the, with the exception largely of sub-Saharan Africa and then some countries like Yemen, Syria, Afghanistan, and you can see a pattern there where, where uh, obviously in places of, of conflict and in places where women have less decision-making power, um, it's harder for women to, to make decisions and to, to achieve what their, their goals there's something else that's happening in, in parts of sub-Saharan Africa, which is a real, um, a strong and, you know, persistent desire for large families. And that's still an area that needs to be uh, better understood. Um, but there have, there are countries in sub-Saharan Africa where family size uh, has come down and is still coming down. Uh, Senegal and Rwanda, um, South Africa, um, but, uh, you know, more needs, needs to be done to understand women's desires. Um, and, and really, this, this part relates to education, making sure that women um, can, you know, helping women and sort of creating an environment where women have the right to make choices about their bodies and their lives and the size of their family and when and how many children they want to have. 
Yes, yes. And what role are there for multilateral, for international organisations? So talk about, you know, political uh, contexts in which uh, support for family planning is or is not available and whether, you know, America will support different projects like that. How important a factor generally is that in terms of helping coalesce uh, different countries to, you know, introduce the kind of family planning that's required? Um, I think it is really important. The countries, I said earlier, you know, the countries with the greatest need um, and with large families and, and high, we say, unmet need for family planning, uh, women who want a space or stop having, space their pregnancies or stop having children altogether but aren't currently using, those countries with the greatest need are also tend to be amongst the poorest countries. The U.S. has been a leader in family planning assistance since the 60s and 70s, but that has um, tapered off somewhat um, in the last um, decade or two, since the mid-90s. Um, it, it's a it's a very important part of uh, overseas assistance. Uh, it should be, let's say. In reality, uh, again, uh, there's been analysis by the Population Council showing that just one percent of overseas development assistance is going to family planning, and um, and we would argue that that should be increased at least to two percent. It's it has multiple effects on the the health and well being of the of the mother her children, uh, the economics at the household level, and then, as we're talking about today, of course, for for climate and environmental reasons. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, I think there should be increased, uh, definitely increases in overseas assistance for family planning. Yes, yes. And there are significant cultural and religious uh, codes and stigmas, I guess, in the global south that are challenging to be navigated by uh, Western policymakers. Yeah, of course. And that's why, I mean, we have to work really closely with partners in these countries. First and foremost, the ministries of health, which have as their mandate to, to make sure women have access to reproductive health care. Um, uh, so, you know, working with them who know best how to reach women and how to navigate um, the challenges that you mentioned. Um but at the end of the day, I think it's, uh, you know, family planning is, is very particular because it can radically change people's lives. Um, we have the technology to do it. Um, it's very safe. And, uh, and a lot of methods are very easy to use, easy to get at community, rural community levels. So um, I think, uh, you know, if we work with people who know the context, work with the groups and the, the stakeholder, local stakeholders to actually uh, deliver the information, assure availability of the methods, then we'll, um, we will succeed. Absolutely. And what, is the, what are the measures that you use to assess a country's uh, level of family planning? Um, there are a few. Uh, the most common one is the contraceptive prevalence rate and uh, some people, um, you know, would, would look at the modern contraceptive prevalence rate versus traditional methods. People have mixed feelings. Some traditional methods really um, would have no uh, scientific rationale for, for being effective. Like, for example, in West Africa, um, women use grigri kind of uh, magic um, to prevent pregnancy. So they might tie beads around their waist, for example, um, uh, but some of the other things that get put into the traditional methods mix, like like the withdrawal method, 
or, um, you know, fertility awareness where you, uh, where you women have an understanding of when they are least likely to get pregnant and would try to uh, coincide like sexual relations on those days. Um, those can, of course, those can be effective as well. So that's sort of traditional methods in a nutshell. Uh, on the other hand, there are moder- there's modern contraceptives. So this is another way that um, countries can, you know, be, be un- understood or grouped um, according to their modern contraceptive prevalence rate. And uh, probably this is how, Fergal, this is how your listeners are, um, are managing to separate having sex from having children. Um, so things like, of course, hormonal methods, uh, there's uh, oral contraceptives, um, intrauterine devices. There's a, um, an injectable method, which women, um, especially women in East Africa and um, some places where it's still a sensitive topic among couples, could could uh, use contraception without their their husband's permission or indeed knowledge. Um, uh, so these are some examples of of modern contraceptives. And I would just say that whether modern or traditional, every every contraceptive, uh, there's no contraception that's 100% effective. And when I talked earlier about um, women, mo- many women needing to use it correctly and consistently over decades in order to, to achieve the smaller families that we want, uh, there is always some failure. And so uh, I like to, to remind people that access to safe, Abortion is an important part of family planning because there will be unintended pregnancies. And I feel very strongly that this uh, should be a, a choice for women, um, you know, who either had a method failure or were not using a method in an un- unintended pregnancy. Right. Absolutely. So you've mentioned some countries that still have work to do. What countries would you highlight in particular? Um well, I know best the the story of countries in the Sahel region of Africa. Um, Niger has um, the highest fertility rate in the world. So they have, on average, women will have 7.6 children during the course of her lifetime. It's a strange thing to talk about, 0.6 of a child, but I think you, you get that between seven and eight kids per woman. Um, there's some new data just out um, from Niger showing that that has come down um, over the last five years to six children on average. And uh, if that's validated, then then I think that that's great news. Uh, women in Niger are like the textbook example of, uh, you know, lowest empower, empowered women in the world. Um, I say this because they literally are called out in a in a book by the World Bank called Voice and Agency, where they look at the decision-making power about, you know, ability to leave the house, whether or not they condone wife beating, um, average age of marriage. So Niger and Chad have the earliest age of marriage. So I think uh, in in countries such as Niger and um, some of the others I mentioned with high fertility rates, others in sub-Saharan Africa, I mentioned Yemen, Syria, Afghanistan, in these countries, it has to be really like uh, two approaches. There has to be improved family planning services and information, better access. But at the same time, things have to be done. And I would say secondary school for, for girls is a very important um, important approach. Things have to be done to allow women to grow into uh, into a place where they can make decisions for themselves about their lives um, so it's a, it's it's not an easy in those cases uh, you know those successful family planning national family planning approaches I talked about earlier 
um, they would be um, they are important to do in these types of countries like Niger and Afghanistan, but it has to, uh, there's more work to be done in terms of, of women's empowerment. So clearly the question of family planning and education, uh, girls' education are interwoven, interconnected and both interact and really uh, help drive the population growth. Um, can you talk about a little bit about the um, importance of girls' education um, and some of the uh, particular challenges there? Yeah, so um, I mentioned earlier that that girls' education affects population uh, dynamics um, in in multiple ways. It delays them getting married, having children. It makes it more likely that they'll want to have a smaller family and they can navigate health systems. They can more likely uh, discuss it with their husband in 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 an effective way. so it's um it's it's very important in terms of population dynamics. Uh, it's also, of course, it's a it's a basic human right. And uh, the world has made. I mean, globally, we've actually come a long way with uh, child children's education in the last couple of decades. There's been a big push for universal primary education. Um, and in some ways, it's been very effective. Um, you look at like the numbers of enrollment, and it looks very good. In, in the poorest parts of the world, so I go back to the Sahel region of Africa, and if I take the example of northern Nigeria, um, where colleagues of, of mine have been working for many years to keep girls in school, um, it's, uh, the, the situation is, is, is pretty bleak. Um, where we've been working um, uh, in, in Kaduna State in northern Nigeria, um, you know, women's literacy in the, this area um, is about 21%. And uh, girls are going to school, going to primary school, but um, a colleague of mine has done like ethnographic research there over many years, over, over about the last decade. And he found, you know, parents were saying, look, uh, we sent our first girl to school. You know, we sacrificed. She would otherwise be helping around the house, maybe selling things for her mother to earn some extra income, et cetera. Um, but they, they sacrificed that and they, they paid, you know, some school fees and paid for her uniform, et cetera. Um, and she, they sent the first girl to school and she finished school and she can't even, you know, read a basic, a basic sentence. So why would they go on to send their second, you know, other daughters to, to school? Um so we saw there northern Nigeria, and um, we're seeing some similar context in, in Niger, where this really poor quality of primary education is a disincentive for the family. And so um, when the girl starts to, to come into adolescence, especially when she starts to develop breasts and starts to menstruate, um, there's not a good alternative um, for that girl um, uh, but to, to marry her. Getting pregnant out of out of marriage is is really taboo and in uh, in most of the Sahel countries, and so you know at that age of adolescence um, she's seen as really at risk unless there's some other viable alternative, and that's why uh, we've really found that uh, secondary school and this approach called safe spaces for girls are super effective. Um, uh, at uh, presenting to families other other path pathways for their daughters. Right, Nigeria has had some significant successes in this area. Yeah, so in our program in Nigeria, we have had really stunning successes. Um, 
Um, as I said, it started with anthropological work, which I, I didn't quite understand a few years ago. My colleague's been there for years. He's been, uh, he and his, his uh, Nigerian colleagues have been living in the villages, participating in people's lives, um, really getting to know all of the factors, uh, you know, the incentives and disincentives uh, related to, to, to keeping girls in, in secondary school. Um, when they started, um, the, the average age of, of marriage in these communities was uh, 14.9. And after a few years of doing safe space programming, and I'll explain that in a minute, but the, the average age of marriage increased by two and a half years. In two and a half years, it might not seem like much, but if you think about a girl at 14 years old versus nearly 17 years old, um, her body is more mature, her mind is more mature, uh, she's better able to, to negotiate her life, um, she has more uh, you know, control over her emotions and uh, more deliberate decision making. There's a huge difference um, um, that that makes in her life, and especially when those two and a half years are at school and in this safe space programming. So she is also at that time learning key life skills. Um, and the, the enrollment in these communities where we've been working, enrollment in secondary school, um, went from around 4% of girls to um, somewhere in the mid 80%. So the whole context changed. When there's just a few girls going to secondary school, people gossip and, you know, say kind of, oh, those parents are, you know, putting their daughter at risk. They don't understand. Um, you know, they're going against our culture and our norms. But when most of the girls, you know, a few years after we started this, it went to, up to I think it was about 85% of girls at school, everything changes. And all of a sudden, it seemed normal to have your girl in secondary school. And if you don't, then you're the outlier. Um, and so we've really, you know, the norms have changed themselves just by this drastic increase in, in girls enrollment. That's very interesting. How how are the financial issues dealt with there? The cost of sending girls to secondary school is still a significant one. And the opportunity cost of having them working in the you know connected to the family is presumably remains substantial yeah that's that's an important um important point for a goal we, we've been working on um with the girls uh, an advocacy approach to to get free a uh, policy of free um secondary school at least junior secondary school um in the state um but it, it is important um the safe spaces are we think affordable and very cost effective. Um, it costs about two hundred dollars per girl for two years of programming, and I and I just want to say what when I say safe space clubs, what do I mean? These are clubs that are led by a mentor from the community, and they really respond to what the girls say that they want. So. Um, our colleagues asked these young teenage girls, what do they want? And they all said they want to be able to read and write. They want to become someone and help their family and help their community. And so that was, as, as my colleague Daniel says, those are the marching orders for the clubs. So the clubs are really reinforcing the reading and writing, but they're also a place where girls can get basic life skills. They learn about their bodies. Um, they learn about um, important things like nutrition and treating diarrhea, et cetera. Um, they, they build social networks. Um, they learn how to express themselves in effective ways. 
So, um, you know, we think, of course, it's it's absolutely a worthwhile investment. And the families are willing to sacrifice it if they see that the girls are actually getting something tangible out of these the safe space clubs and staying in school, which they are. Right. That's hugely inspiring. Now, the Drawdown book highlights how 62 million girls or so face significant barriers to accessing education. Well, what are the lessons from Nigeria and other countries where you've been working? Well, I think uh, you said it, you make a very good point. I think having this an understanding of the barriers. So we now have a really good understanding of barriers in the Hausa community, which is the largest ethnic group in, in West Africa. Um, but the, the barriers will differ, um, you know, by country and context. Uh, I think I mentioned earlier the quality of primary education is really important. And so if parents see that their children are learning something valuable and taking that back home and uh, maybe being an asset to the family um, through their their traditional education, you know, that, you know, improving the quality of that education um, can really get acceptance and buy in from the family. Um, but there are, of course, there are financial barriers, even in places where there's a policy for free education. Oftentimes there are these small fees that are added or the cost of books or the cost of uniforms, uh, cost of transport, et cetera, that makes it hard for poor families to keep their kids in school. Um, so those are things that can be addressed. Um, you know, I think what, where, where there is political will, um, uh, you, you know, you can see a great improvement in terms of quality and enrollment. Absolutely. And I, I know from talking to social entrepreneurs who are active in the education space that they grow to a certain level, a certain size, and then they need to uh, engage in advocacy really within the regional or the, the, the local educational systems and, and national indeed um, to try and, you know, create momentum and create change. Yeah, I think that the governments will always be, um, you know, the context I know, I know better in sub-Saharan Africa than Asia and Latin America, but um, it's the role of the government, I, I believe, to have a certain level, offer a certain level of, of education and a certain level of health services. And so I do think, I know some, you know, real beautiful uh, international NGOs doing work in these fields. But I, I do think that we have to partner first and foremost with the government to, to try to strengthen their programs and make links with what's already happening at the community. And that's why, uh, Frugal, the safe space clubs that I mentioned are, are done in collaboration with the local governments in, in Nigeria. And they're meant to uh, complement what the girls are learning at school. And they're really meant to help during this very vulnerable time uh, transition between primary and secondary school. And that's another, uh, when you mentioned barriers a few minutes ago, you know, that's another time to really focus our attention because these girls are, uh, a lot of the, the poorest girls are at risk of not making that transition. And so some effective approaches can be done to, to help them and their families keep the girls at school. Absolutely. Are you optimistic, Alicia? Are you a very specific focus, I guess, in the Sahel, as you mentioned? Um, what's your sense? Is, is this a an area where there's gradual uh, progress? Yeah, um, I, I'm the president of a U.S. nonprofit called Venture Strategies for Health and Development. Our mission is to to help achieve, um, uh, you know, to help stabilize population by the end of this century through upholding girls and women's rights to make choices about their lives. And I am very optimistic 
I think we have a long way to go, but we know how to get there. And uh, I think we need to continue to put our attention and investment into the poorer parts of the world and uh, making sure, sure women have the information and access to, 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 to what they need to, to make choices about their lives. Well, it sounds like there are some good case studies. There's some good examples. We've got some good situations, some, you know, good, clear in information about what works. And, you know, hopefully that can be transferable as well. Absolutely, it can be. And I know, uh, you know, in the case of family planning, um, there have been uh, there have been study tours of, you know, government ministers and other le community leaders going to, for example, Iran or Morocco um, or Tunisia, where, um, you know, context could be similar um, in terms of um, Muslim countries with some more conservative um, tendencies. But they can, uh, you know, these leaders can see how it's been done in other cases, what's worked, what hasn't worked, what messages can religious leaders bring to the people um, to, to reinforce this idea that family planning is really central to a to a couple's lives together, and uh, and that's an important decision for them to make together. And uh, it's also, um, um, you know, permissible in the context of Islam and and Christianity and all religions, really. Yes, yes. Uh, what's next for Project Drawdown in these areas? I know that it's the first uh, data analysis, the first cut in a way. And you know, uh, you mentioned that there were some allocation decisions that were made um, to get to some you know meaningful conclusions to this first stage. Are there research uh, ideas or themes that are emerging? And we're continuing work. Yeah, absolutely. So the one that I mentioned earlier is about a more careful um, distribution of the uh, the estimated emissions um, averted between these two solutions. Um, I also think there there were some assumptions in the um, uh, choosing the high fertility um, um, projection from the UN um, is problematic. With we 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 did it across the board, and I want to have a more nuanced approach. Um, the countries that are already low fertility countries um, would be very unlikely to go and meet those um, high fertility projections. So I think we can parse that out more carefully. I don't think it's going to have a great um, impact in terms of, I think the results will be similar, but uh, there's some methodological things that I think we can fine tune. And uh, I've been exploring whether... Um, carbon um, offset financing options could uh, could be applied to family planning programs. Um, I think it's it's probably not the easiest. I think it's actually an easy case to make. I don't think, uh, I don't know how acceptable it would be. It's a pretty radical idea. Um, um, as I learn more about um, these financing options, they tend to go with the more traditional, you know, um, renewable energy type projects, et cetera. But uh, I think we've shown through Project Drawdown and some of the other work that I, I referenced that it really is a hugely important solution to consider. And uh, it's a win-win for, for women and their families, uh, their household economies and the environment. Yes, and society at large, clearly having an educated, you know, population. Now, what has been the reaction to this? I mean, I know Drawdown's had tremendous success. Uh, it's, I think, the best-selling book at the moment on Amazon and other places uh, in, 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 in the environment and, and, and climate change. Um, 
with respect to these these uh, issues, education and family planning, have there been any uh, responses that you've been aware of? Um, I have. I'm a, I'm not as plugged into Project Drawdown as I was a couple years ago, but uh, I've heard um, through my friends there that um, these solutions are getting um, a lot of attention, and uh, because they are surprising to a lot of people, so. Um, I, I hope for more occasions to talk about it. I think something um, something I'd point out, um, which we don't discuss in the book, but it's really important to keep in mind, is that um, as family size falls, if family size falls rapidly, there can be an economic bonus at the country level. What people call that the demographic dividend. And so um, I think it would be um, you know, an oversight not to at least recognize, we haven't accounted for it, but um, as if fertility falls quickly in these country contexts and there's an ensuing um, demographic dividend and economic boost, um, we have to take into account the likelihood of um, that causing, uh, you know, increasing consumption and causing greater emissions. And the, the population and consumption is not like an either or. We have to we have to invest and we have to consider both of these. But um, uh, it should be noted that that that's um, one potential outcome of you know the family planning and girls education solution is could could lead to increased consumption. Yes, yes, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Alicia, for taking the time today to talk about the research uh, for Drawdown and all the other great work and initiatives that you're involved in in uh, family planning. And I uh, wish you the very best success in the future with this. Thank you, Fergal, for having me. It's, it's a great pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Drawdown Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. We would really appreciate if you could help spread the word by leaving a rating on iTunes, sharing with your friends and on social media. You can find out more about Project Drawdown at drawdown.org. If you'd like to hear leading sustainability and environmental thinkers share their views on the biggest sustainability challenges we are facing, you can listen to the Sustainability Agenda podcast at the sustainabilityagenda.com, iTunes, as well as other leading podcast platforms including Stitcher, Podbean and Google Play.